0: Listeners, and welcome to another action-packed episode of Whiskey and IR Theory, the podcast where Dan Nexon, that's me, and Patrick Jackson drink whiskey and talk about a work or works of international relations theory. Today's episode is uh, part one of A Relational Theory of World Politics by Yaching Chin. If you've taken a look at the length of this podcast, you know it's an hour and a half. And yes, that's correct. It means that Patrick and I talked for a total of about three hours. So I think it's important that we take a moment with a heavy heart to remember the sacrifice made by the many glasses of whiskey that were consumed to bring you this episode We will never forget you.
1: Hey, Patrick. Hey, Dan. How's it going? It's going fine. How about you? Not too bad. Semester is about to end, and nobody has any idea what the fall is going to look like. Nobody has any idea what the summer is going to look like, so it's just mass uncertainty all the time.
0: Well, the good news, I guess, such as it were is that we can uh, sit at home and record podcasts, right?
1: This is definitely one of those silver linings of the plague here. So, And it's fortunate that we both have basements that we can turn into cheap recording studios. But it's also the case that for
0: us, you know, this is we're stuck at home. But for a lot of the workforce, which is essential... Uh, it's not being stuck at home, and a, m- the massive majority of the essential workforce is, of course, uh, on the lower end of the wage spectrum. So we should be mindful of that.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. It could be, um, We could be in a much more precarious situation than we are. This is actually a great luxury that we get a chance to do this, to be able to talk about these things. And I know from people who've reached out to me... Uh, both on Twitter and email and such that there are quite a number of people actually listening to this and uh, hopefully we're able to provide a little bit of distraction from the world as it were as we kind of try to think through this Yeah, you know, it's part of me is shocked part of
0: me is excited and a lot of me is dismayed that we're getting as many downloads <laughs> as we actually are so, uh, you know, I don't know what that says about about uh, our field but you know
1: here we are exactly and i feel like it's been a good forcing mechanism for me to read a number of things i mean this book in particular is one that i've had sort of sitting on my virtual shelf for a while and hadn't really had a chance to look at but you know this is a, a an author who i first encountered years ago when i was putting together a tenure file and there was a Chinese article that I included in the file by, by Chin, which the, almost the only thing in English in there were quotations from your and my 1999 article. And I was like, "Ha! Huh, this is interesting. We have some, I have some Chinese readers. I wonder, I wonder what that's about.
0: Yeah, I remember you sending me this email all excitedly. Hey, Dan, somebody in China is citing us.
1: And then I had to go show it to one of my Chinese colleagues and make sure they were citing us not to say, look what a bunch of idiots these people are. So, but no, it turns out to be a a much more uh, nuanced engagement, shall we say. So, yaching
0: qin, uh, or qin yaching, if we are not using the Western order, so the patronymic is qin. Is uh, considered one of the really important Chinese IS, IR scholar practitioners working today. Uh, do you want to? You, you pulled up his biography. Do you want to say a little bit about it? Sure.
1: Well, Qin Yaqing is president and professor of the China Foreign Affairs University. He's the chancellor of the China Diplomatic Academy. He is the editor-in-chief of the Foreign Affairs Review, which is the academic journal for those institutions. He's done work with the United Nations. He's been a special assistant to the Chinese Eminent Person Group. Um, He is definitely one of the leading Chinese IR theorists and has published in all manner of interesting places. And this book in particular, was a deliberate attempt to bring some of the stuff that he'd already thought through and done in Chinese to an English-speaking audience. So, very esteemed individual.
0: Yeah, you can just look at the blurbs. So, the first one's from Peter Katzenstein. With this path-breaking book, uh, Yachin, Qin's stature as China's leading scholar of international relations has shifted to a position of global intellectual leadership, embodying the deep background knowledge of Sinic civilization. Relationality is the book's core construct. Scholars who think that rationality rules the world, take note. The book signals the arrival of a truly global discipline of international relations. Barry Buzan, (laughs) Chin's work is a landmark in the creation of a truly global discipline of IR. He makes the case that culture necessarily shapes social theory and backs this up with explanations of, quote, the Chinese way of thinking, unquote, about social order. He assesses mainstream Western IR theory with a knowledgeable and penetrating outsider's eye and sets out his own contrasting and complementary relational theory based on Confucian norms and practices. This book will change the way you think about IR theory and its potential development. Amitav Acharya, one of your colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, but also one of the leading figures in the move towards global international relations, says that a relational theory of world politics masterfully blends contemporary IR theory with Chinese and, history and ideas. It is an original and pathbreaking catalyst for moving the field of IR beyond its traditional Western-centric concepts and theories towards a global IR. And if you know that, if Acharya is saying that you are forwarding global IR. Charia really likes what you're doing. Uh, And finally, Astrid Norden, who's a friend of ours who we got to spend some time with uh, in Lancaster a few years ago in a workshop that I think is going to come up probably pretty shortly, uh, says, finally, we have a full-length English language book outlining the theorization of world politics by one of China's most influential and interesting scholars. A must-read for anyone interested in global international relations theorizing, Chinese traditions of thought, or Chinese foreign relations. So I guess if we're going to pick a recent book to do, which is something we originally said that we would not be doing, this is not a bad place to start, right?
1: No, exactly. And uh, it's useful, I think... At least I found it useful to read a book that was taking relations seriously from a very different cultural background. And so that was kind of interesting because I don't, I'm not a China specialist. I don't know an awful lot about Chinese history, Chinese philosophy. But I know Thing or Three, we know Thing or Three about relations. So seeing that engagement, I think, gave us a nice in to be able to talk about this. Though it was a little
0: difficult to choose the right whiskey. I wanted to read this because I wanted a forcing mechanism to read it. Um, I'm pretty mercenary that way. I don't really read a lot of books these days, and so this has been my excuse to do that. So, that being said, this book is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Given that it's a lot, I'm really curious what whiskey you chose to drink and make me envious of tonight.
1: Yeah, I I thought... Quite a lot about this one, actually, because in some ways the obvious choice would be okay, it's a Chinese book, I should look for some Chinese whiskey equivalent. Um, But then it occurred to me that that might be a little bit of kind of orientalizing, especially since the only things I have here in the house are Japanese whiskeys. And the idea of drinking a Japanese whiskey with a Chinese IR book really struck me as a problem. So I said, okay, let's not do that. So I started thinking more, what is going on in this book? Well, this is an attempt to ground in a particular cultural context and then reach out to and engage with another one. That's kind of the the modality of theorizing that he's doing. So, all right, this is whiskey. Where is the homeland of whiskey is, of course, Scotland. Uh, and in some ways, what is the most essential of Scotch whiskies? I would argue it's Ardbeg. So something nice, peaty, complex. Ardbeg is also considered a lot by most scotch drinkers. So, what I went for this evening is a special ardbeg. This is uh, one of Ardbeg's, uh, they do an annual special for the, the festival on Isla. And this is the uh, special from, I believe, 2016, maybe 2015. It's called Oriverdis, and it was produced for the World Cup. It's a green and gold kind of thing. Um, but I decided also to go whole hog, so I've got the ardbeg glass that I Quote unquote, borrowed from the distillery when I was there. Um, and I have my little Ardbeg water pitcher so I could add some water to it as we go on through this. So there's a whole ritual connected with this now. But that's what I thought would be appropriate for tonight.
0: All right. Well, why don't you drink yours and I'll drink my substitute? <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. All right. So, what would you say this book is about?
1: I think, if I had to summarize it all together, this book is an attempt to make Chinese sense of the world, by which I mean an attempt to make sense of the world by grounding the author's perspective in a set of Chinese cultural traditions and engaging with things in a way that makes the content of those cultural traditions very, very clear. And given the well-known kind of Western European-American dominance of a lot of IR theory, by Chin explicitly locating himself outside of that, what he's able to provide is an engagement with that Western core, but also a, a sense of an alternative. And one of the tensions that's going to run through the book or runs through the book and I think we'll end up talking a little bit about is the tension between developing a theory that is appropriate to Chinese and Confucian cultural areas and developing a theory that is using insights from Chinese and Confucian cultural notions that can actually speak to the rest of the world and I think he's playing right in that exact tension so he sums it up pretty well in the preface when he talks about looking at different aspects of the mountain and Suggests that, you know, where you stand is going to affect an awful lot how you think the mountain looks. And he's very clear about what his location is and where he wants to stay.
0: So I was taking a look at the acknowledgements to do your acknowledgement test, and I discovered something a little embarrassing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we are listed, we we are are. thanked in the Mm acknowledgements. So, Okay.
1: And to be honest, I'm I'm also surreptitiously thanked, but I don't think that Chin knows this because I was one of the reviewers.
0: Oh, you're outing yourself now. I'm outing
1: myself now. Uh, I was one mm. of the reviewers at Cambridge. So
0: he was reviewer too, the one who Chin hates.
1: <laughs> I'm not going to go that far, but uh, but I, I did read this in manuscript originally.
0: So um, you know, and among the list are a bunch of are some luminaries of Chinese art, some of whom I actually recognize which means they must be pretty luminary-ish. There's Astrid is thanked. Lily Ling, which is a little sad to read, actually. Tin Dunn, Colin White. He's also, at the outset, uh, thanks Amitav Acharya, Barry Bazan, lots of other people. Um, David Blaney shows up. Peter
1: Katzenstein. Uh,
0: Yeah, just, you know, kind of a lot of really important theorists. And then us. So... (laughs) i
1: <laughs> So I'm, I'm this happy really to be in that company. That's great.
0: So I, this I, is this <laughs> is correct. Right. So when I say this is a lot, I mean this is a book of this is a theory book. It is definitely a work of IR theory. It's got ontology, it's got epistemology, it's got methodology. It's got uh pages and pages of running engagement with other theorists and other schools.
1: Mhm right exactly exactly no this is this is very much a detailed engagement and again i think it it brings up that that ambiguity that i mentioned before of sometimes when you get theory that identifies itself as quote-unquote non-western theory that sometimes the agenda seems to be let's talk about how theories based on western notions don't apply to our part of the world and shin doesn't want to settle for that But at the same time, he wants to say there are certain culturally distinctive things about his part of the world that require a different mode of theorizing. So there's an interesting tension that kind of runs through those. It's nice that the vehicle that he's chosen to express this is an engagement with mainstream dominant Anglophone international relations theory, which even those of us that don't actually know an awful lot about Chinese thought well, we know a little bit about IR theory, that becomes the bridge that we can use to bring it over here. He certainly reads mm. Waltz and Cohane and members of the English school extraordinarily closely, which I think is, is, is another commendable feature here.
0: At the same time, to the extent that, say, somebody like Eikenberry's work aligns with a certain story about American foreign relations... And about a, a story about kind of a, that it aligns with a kind of a certain ideology, uh, and a certain narrative about the U.S. and its place in the world, and what the world ought to look like, and the way that the U.S. fits into that. By that same token, this book to me seems to align with a certain Chinese official line. Uh, so issues about emphasizing cultural diversity. Um, and as you say very thoughtful and nuanced uh, but this kind of anti-universalist bent uh, and an association of western thought as being an imposition uh, for example and so that's all kind of interesting mm mm-hmm.
1: mm mm-hmm. no there's there's a complexity to the argument which i think speaks to the intellectual integrity of the work that it's not comfortable simply saying no 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 the west is different it is but it also isn't so he's playing around in the ambiguity of that peculiar particularity universality uh dichotomy in ways that i think makes it a really interesting and and uh, challenging sometimes challenging read
0: but i just to underscore the point i just made uh Civilizational diversity as a aspiration and a way of thinking about international relations to a lot of Western foreign policy thinkers uh, is essentially the Chinese claim for why universal human rights don't apply, right? And for um, for a world of polycentric sovereignty, uh, which could be a good thing. I mean, normatively, it's kind of you know wherever you want to be. But I, I think it's it has to be read in that sense in the same way. And I think he's very right about this. A lot of Western theories have to be read as ways of talking about um, and locating and justifying a certain set of uh, Western foreign policy principles and positions.
1: Certainly, the inverse of cultural particularity is about limiting human rights is cultural universalism is about promoting human rights. So there's definitely a, a mirror image thing going on there. One other thing that I wanted to call attention to at the very outset of the book, it's on um, it's on page 20, actually, of the Roman 20 of the preface. When he announced something, and it was interesting because when I first read this, I said, this is, this is a very interesting position for him to take. I'm not sure why. This wouldn't have been what I would have predicted that he would have said. but uh, But on that page he's talking about the distinctiveness of the account that he's trying to develop and his specific argument is the specific phrase is to relate and to be related is human there's a very particular humanism or or social autonomy of the social claim that sort of runs through this so one of the claims that he makes is that the chinese tradition as opposed to the western tradition thinks about relations as being something that's uniquely human and uniquely social. And I find that to be a rather fascinating claim, because in a way, it it acknowledges the strength of, quote-unquote, Western science, and then says, no, 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 we've got something entirely different that we can bring in this way. So the role of the material, the role of the physical, the role of the natural sciences is something I think it's also kind of lurking in the background of this particular text.
0: Well, I don't think it's lurking at all. I think it's quite explicit. I mean, his argument, in a sense, says that Western science is indeed, because of its domain, has certain kinds of potentially universal qualities, but that the extension of the positivism of naturalism to the social scientific domain doesn't work. And that is, in fact, a domain of pluralism and cultural embeddedness. And so he draws this very clear distinction Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I think is so. I I don't think it's I don't think it's buried. I think it's explicit, right? I think it's that um, the human sciences are truly distinctive, and one of the things that makes them distinctive is the necessity of cultural uh, pluralism and cultural particularity, because social theories emerge from their cultural context. Me In a way that, that and can't be as easily universalized as, say, the law of gravitation or Einsteinian relativity.
1: Right. Let me rephrase slightly then, because I think you, you put that a little bit better than I did. Um, no, the distinction, the natural social distinction is obviously not hidden here. What's interesting here is how quick he is to cede the universality of the natural sciences to the West. He does not develop a Chinese natural science, right? So the whole argument seems to be premised on, you can have the natural, and then we're going to talk about the social. And that's where the domain of relations, that's where the domain of meaningfulness and so on takes off. It's different than, say, arguments about Chinese medicine. like That's not an argument that he wants to make. He's perfectly comfortable giving the natural realm over to the kind of universality that is associated with Western natural science. So I found that an interesting decision on his part, to just basically plant his flag on the social and say, that's what we're going to go after here. And, yeah, and if you want we to... mentioned Lily Ling earlier, and one of the reasons why that occurs to me is because one of the things that, that Ling was always trying to argue was that if we want to take this seriously, we have to talk not just about a Buddhist or Taoist or Chinese approach to the social world, but we also have to talk about that an approach to the natural world. And Qing does not make that step. Yeah, and
0: if you want to hear what this sounds like in his own words, I mean, the very first page of chapter one, which is page three, It is true that a well-established social theory should have broader applicability and gain more validity, even though no social theory is completely universal in the final analysis. I think we'd agree with that. However, it is absolutely necessary to discuss how a social theory originates in the first place. Social theory may well aim at universality, and it is in a sense justifiable, but no theory starts from a temporal spatial null in a uniform homogeneity with an initial universal meaning. Uh, Social theory tends to originate in a particular geocultural setting which shapes the practices of the cultural community and thus defines the efforts to develop theory too. Uh, Further down the page, in other words, social theory bears a cultural birthmark, which will be with it even when it becomes a well-established theory with a higher level of universality. This birthmark is indelible.
1: Uh
0: Uh So then we go into in this first chapter some discussion of theory and a distinction between monism and pluralism or monism and pluralism. And this is not your monism. Um, What did you think of this distinction?
1: Well, I think he's, regardless of whether one might argue with his semantic choice, um, but of course I would, because I have staked my claim on a different notion of what monism means. Um, I think he's, he's drawing a reasonably, well-established distinction here between those that assume that there's fundamental similarities across cultural contexts and and approaches that don't. So you either start from a position of fundamental diversity, you start from a position that everything can be reduced down to some basic uh, fundamental that goes across all sorts of different perspectives. What's interesting to me is that when he's talking about social theory, what he thinks is rooted culturally is what we might call, and have called in other things, scientific ontology, right? So it's conceptions of what kinds of things exist, substantive sets of claims. Those are the things that he relativizes to the cultural background that uh, that gave birth to them. The notion of them being marked indelibly is, I think, really striking language. So in that level, I, I thought that the most interesting thing about it was the argument only is about substantive theory. It's not about things like methodology. It's not about things like how do you know a claim is true.
0: Yeah, we should get to his understanding of what a theory is and his dualistic nature of the hardcore argument uh, shortly. Mm -hmm. But I do want to stress that for him, the problem with monism is not simply this impulse to reduce the social sciences to natural sciences. It's a kind of essentially a Epistemological, ontological imperialism. Mm-hmm. Right. So monism is both grounds for treating human sciences as t- like natural sciences when they are not, but it's also ground for saying there's only one way to do human sciences, and thus for excluding in the West a series of post positivist or non positivist theories, which is bad. And then also for excluding theories that might. Uh, appear out of say a Confucian or a quote unquote Chinese cultural context, um, and so there's this. It is this sort of danger of naive universalism, um, and that that applies across the theoretical and the um, political realm. And I think it's actually really interesting here because he definitely later on wants to, and you know, he sort of. In his discussions of how he takes up theories of practice, right, how they fit into his approach, it's very clear that he's part of the virtue of his argument as he sees it, or as he articulates it, is that he's sort of consistent all the way down. So his theory about the production of knowledge is the same, is ontologically and foundationally essentially the same as his theory about uh, the how international politics works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, yeah, you were...
1: No, I was just saying, yeah,
0: go ahead. Um, And then the alternative to monism is pluralism. And this takes, and I think, you know, we don't have to, I think, run through the entire range of the argument here because I think it's fairly obvious from what we've just said. But I do think the interesting thing about his argument about pluralism or the thing that's kind of notable is that, is this idea that he comes back up again later on, which is that cultural pluralism is good because it is out of cultural pluralism that we produce different kinds of scientific ontologies, which allows for theoretical innovation and for the possibility of revolutionary science mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the social sciences. No, exactly.
1: So- and I think what's what's interesting about that too, the discussion he has in that chapter about the English school, for instance, because. Certainly within a U.S. IR context, the way the debate, the sort of second great debate, is portrayed is as a methodological debate. And Chin is pretty adamant that this is not actually a methodological question, that this is a scientific ontology question, this is a, a theory question. And focusing on those things allows him to in effect, argue that there's more distance between the English school and mainstream international relations theory, mainstream Anglophone international relations theory, especially U.S. dominated, by not focusing on methodology at all. And the reason why I think this is relevant to the point you were just making about revolutionary science is... Of course, when you start getting into Kuhn's understanding of how scientific progress happens, the hard core of a paradigm isn't just about substantive claims. It's about methodological and epistemic claims about what makes a claim true. But Chin is dismissing methodology as the ground on which to differentiate these things. So the pluralism that he's interested in is a substantive pluralism rather than a methodological pluralism.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's much else to say about chapter one. The most important additional things in here that have to do with the what he sees as the fundamental duality between dominant Western streams of thought, which are individualistic, externalist, uh, not terribly relational, substantialist. Uh, we'll probably have to define those terms soon. And then Chinese is the opposite. It starts with the human rather than nature, focusing on human heart-mind rather than on things and matter. It never takes the natural world as a separate space and is never considered matter as what they should spend much time and energy studying, Chinese turn towards the inner self, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's going to be, that's going to run through the entire book and it's going to be dealt with more comprehensively later. Um, But I will say that whenever I read these sweeping generalizations, I understand what they're doing, but I just have in my notes, Western spiritualism. (laughs) There is fairly complicated, right? There are various kinds of, again, spiritualist movements or strains of Greek thought um, for just to take two examples that I don't think fit that this mold very well.
1: Yeah, my, my marginal notes were about uh, medieval mystics who don't seem to fit this at all, and there's you know, traditions of, of Christianity that are very much non-individualistic. So, no, it is a it's a broad-brush generalization, but again, I think it's a broad-brush generalization in defense of a point which I don't think we would agree with, that there are different ways of making sense of the world.
0: So, um, chapter two, this is where he uh, develops his understanding of a modified version of kind of the kuhn Lakatosh argument, Uh, and I had a lot of trouble here. Uh, just kind of following what he meant by metaphysical. It took a while to get to that. So just very briefly, how would you summarize? Well, maybe we should back up, right? So do you want to summarize his argument first, or do you want to summarize Kunin Lakatos? Do we want to bring Kunin Lakatos in when we talk about I think where be, his
1: argument differs? I think it might be useful to summarize his argument first and then talk a little bit about Kuhn and Lakatos. Because he does he does use that word metaphysical, but he uses it in a very strange well, strange to my ears way i couldn't quite figure out what he was doing for a while um, and then it occurred to me that the way he was using the notion of metaphysical hardcore was actually similar to the way it gets used in a lot of anglophone ir theory let me explain what i mean so chin's argument is that a theory has certain sets of fundamental assumptions at its core and that those assumptions are not themselves empirically testable or verifiable, but those assumptions anchor the rest of the theoretical apparatus. They're fundamental wagers or places that that theorists place their bets in terms of what the world is like. And he suggests that there are different metaphysical wagers, but they're not different metaphysical wagers within dominant strains of anglophone ir he argues those are all the same wager and the real difference is between those schools of anglophone ir on the one hand and chinese approaches on the other and he does that i think because he for him the core metaphysical assumption of anglophone ir is individualism and rationalism and once you are operating at that level, then realism and neorealism and neoliberal institutionalism and and liberal constructivism and all of these things look very much the same because they become variations on a theme about individuals making decisions under conditions of more or less uncertainty. And then the Chinese version is entirely different in his accounting. So that's where he wants to cut in, is at the level of those like fundamental ontological propositions, which are immunized from empirical test. What's interesting is that he uses, or tries to use, now he does use, I don't know how successfully he uses, Imre Lakatos, and he uses some of the Kuhnian language to to, to talk about this. So of course, Kuhn notion of paradigms and the idea that there's fundamental incommensurability between different kinds of paradigms and then Lakatos modifies this by saying there can still be progressive shifts between these sorts of research programs. What's interesting about the way that Chin uses these terms as opposed to the way Lakatos and Kuhn use these terms is Well, La- Kuhn anyway. Well, Kuhn. Uh, Cuz
0: I know what you're going to say,
1: right? But anyway go. On. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that for Kuhn especially the hardcore, the centerpiece, the the, the world-disclosing wager that grounds a paradigm is not just a set of substantive claims, but is also a set of claims about like what makes things true. It has epistemic content to it. The way Chin uses these terms is much more similar to the way anglophone IR theorists use these terms to talk about the isms. They say there are these core propositions that are just kind of in there, but they're just basically empirical propositions, which researchers choose not to evaluate, as opposed to the Cunian version, where you don't have a choice about not evaluating them because they are fundamentally kind of epistemologically wired into the very way you would evaluate things. So there's a a strange parallel here between Chin's use and dominant anglophone IR use, which I think you would agree with me, is not exactly what Kuhn and probably not even what Lakatos was actually saying when they were using these terms in their philosophy of science context.
0: And I actually think it's a problem for his argument, not the argument he's going to make later about relational IR and his vision of relational IR, but it's a problem for some of the claims he's making here. Uh, And the reason is that he wants us to think that what we would call the social ontology, right? That is the sort of stuff that makes up your theory. What are the entities? What are the processes? What are the relations? Uh, that those things uh, have incommensurable content. Right? And he really means incommensurable content. He means that they cannot be that you cannot directly compare a relational theory to a rational individualist theory uh, in any way, shape, or form. Moreover, he embeds this in a very strong claim. So at the bottom of page 32. He says when he's talking about this metaphysical component, which again is this this generates incommensurabilities. Mm-hmm. He says a social theorist is born, brought up in living in a particular geocultural space, enjoying a specific historical period. She has learned the language and lived the practical knowledge. The cultural community has provided her with a menu of thinking and doing, and she can hardly think and do something outside this menu. Just as an international theorist who has lived in the tradition of the Westphalian international system can theorize neatly and rigorously about anarchy and balances of power, but cannot think and theorize about the ordering principle of the Chinese tribute system or the Japanese Tokugawa system, where anarchy and balance of power seem to have had much less relevance.
1: Uh
0: To which I have some marginal notes. (laughs) which uh, essentially, the, the one that I can repeat is, um, what's the value of cant here? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. What exactly do we mean by can't? The, as we know, the concept of the tribute system is Fairbanks's concept. It's a Western concept to describe a, say, describe, I would think, people would argue, somewhat Iraq, you know, somewhat ham-handedly and perhaps inaccurately,, you know, uh, a series of diplomatic practices associated primarily with the Ming and Qing period of Chinese history. But I I just, I don't buy that, right? I I buy the idea that um, your background knowledge will make things more intuitively plausible, right? So I buy the idea that you will be disposed to think about the world in terms of substances if that's the milieu you are brought up on. Mm -hmm. Um, I buy that you may be disposed to think about the world of uh, international politics as an anarchical one among sovereign states if you are brought up in that world. Although my guess would be that most people don't think about that. And the people who think most strongly that way are probably people who are socialized into the realist tradition uh, in secondary socialization, mm-hmm. right? That is during their education. Um, but nonetheless, I would say that, that yes, it might make it difficult. It might lead to all sorts of biases. I don't think it produces incommensurability.
1: Right? I, I agree. And I would just push one step further because... Even though he uses the word incommensurability, I'm not completely convinced that he actually thinks these are totally incommensurable. So if you flip ahead a little bit on page 48, when he's talking again about balance of power in the tribute system, so this is an example that he uses throughout the chapter, he says, IR theories with a theoretical hardcore cultivated by the Westphalian practices may not explain and interpret well phenomena in the tribute system. Now, that sounds like a straight up kind of empirical proposition. Like, if we go in assuming that there's going to be balancing dynamics, we may not see balancing dynamics simply because there are different cultural practices that are, that are under, underpinning this. But then you go a little bit further down, and he argues the background knowledge of a socioeconomic community of practice may lead to theories like dependency theory, and that of a gender based community of practice may result in a feminist theory of war. A theorist who is highly familiar with different international systems may provide a theory based on an in depth comparison. Comparison's the key word here because if you can compare, they're not really incommensurable. Questioning many key concepts, such as the balance of power, which are familiar only in one international system but alien to other international systems. So, even though he wants to argue that there is incommensurability, that there are fundamentally different ways that we sort of by default start making sense of the world, he still holds open the possibility that there can be meaningful comparisons, reaching outside of one's context to try to explain something in other contexts. Uh, I I would think what I would want to say here is there's, at least for me, there's an ambiguity here about whether what he's really trying to do is to develop a theory that is applicable to quote-unquote Chinese realities, or whether he's trying to say there are Notions that come out of non Westphalian sets of international political practices, which give us some explanatory traction outside of that system. And I think that there's a tension there in that thought. A word like incommensurability would suggest to us that it really is on one side, but I think that the text betrays that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we should be clear.
0: To say that two theories are incommensurable, as you alluded to earlier, is to say that they cannot be directly tested against one another or directly evaluated against one another. So you have to reside to some second order criteria. Would it be third order criteria. It'd be second order criteria. Second order criteria. Yeah, it would be sec- so. You have to re- you have to draw on some second order criteria, some external criteria, if you want to competitively evaluate them, okay. and. Famously, in some of Kuhn's writings, and what really pissed a lot of people off, is that second-order criteria was socially contingent, non-rational, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Lakatosha's Reconstruction is an attempt to create a rational second-order criteria that mimics the same kind of explanatory work that Kuhn is doing. Incommensurability is only really a big deal because of certain debates about the basis of scientific progress. Um, and if you're not really concerned with, say, what logical empiricists think constitutes progress, ultimately, incommensurability isn't that
1: interesting. Certainly not from an epistemic point of view, but it is interesting from kind of a cultural-political point of view, which I think is more the term in which he's using the notion of incommensurability. And I think what that gives rise to is this question, which I don't think he successfully resolves in the text, of does the fact that a particular set of theoretical assumptions came out of a certain set of cultural practices mean that only those theories are applicable to those cultural practices and i think that's the way that he wants to use the notion of incommensurability which is why which is why it's not as clean as it would be in a straight up philosophy of science these theories are not comparable with each other's sense
0: well, that is interesting because I have the the phrase "strategic incommensurability" written on one of my post-it notes in the book mm. uh, later on, and this is of course the notion that uh, incommensurability is a rhetorical device deployed in a set of power relations. Uh, so, in the in Galileo Cordier, the argument is that Galileo um, that Galileo was an unequal participant in debates about the Copernican system, and so his interlocutors demanded that he justify his embrace of the Copernican system on their terms, right? So we just don't understand you. You have to explain what you're doing to us in a way we can understand it. Is a way of asserting power. Interestingly enough, it can also be a way of trying to protect heterodox positions from the powerful, right? And this is an issue in IR where I think incommensurability was used as a strategic shield to say, basically, let us do what we're doing, even if you don't get it or you don't think it's proper science because what we're doing is incommensurable with what you're doing here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, I think it would be interesting, I don't want to run the whole argument, but I think it would be interesting to think about this invocation of incommensurability, because precisely it isn't really strictly incommensurability, as a kind of rhetorical or strategic move. I'm not saying that there's anything like nefarious to it. I just think it's interesting to see what it does rhetorically in the argument, mm-hmm. right? And what it does rhetorically in the argument here is actually to say that Westerners uh, can't impose their theories or say our theories are necessarily better than non-Western theories and they can't hegemonize the intellectual space or you know, they can do it as a matter of practical politics, but they shouldn't do it. And so again it's sort of it's 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 a defend it sort of comes across as a a measure of defending pluralism here.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost incommensurability as unassimilatability. Right, so I can't take your theory and simply recode it in my terms and therefore demonstrate that you had nothing original to say. So at that level that incommensurability seems to function as as that kind of shield and it's Useful that we're talking about this right now because we were talking about chapter two, but then chapter three really expands on this and really kind of kind of goes into it a little bit. And I think the ambiguity that we've been talking about here is really much more prominently on display in chapter three, uh, as he as he develops the argument a little more. So if I'm looking at at page fifty three, um, if there is indeed incommensurability between social theories, it is first of all because their metaphysical hard cores are not commensurable. So that's one of the stronger formulations that would suggest that the core commitment with what he calls metaphysics seems to be something about like a, a core commitment. Um, that that is what gives a theory its distinctiveness. And if we start off with that distinctiveness, then we can't simply assimilate one theory to the other, which then raises the question of what are we supposed to do with it? And I his answer is is I did not find this part of his answer necessarily compelling, because then you get to you get down to page 60, 64, All social theories are local in the first place, born of the background knowledge of a cultural community. Okay, instead sort of a philosophy of science, sociology of science point. A social theory originates in a particular cultural setting, has its birthmark during a whole life cycle, etc. etc. The next paragraph, the social theory is first of all to have local application. So, it is natural that a social theory functions, first of all, to spontaneously respond to the local, reflecting local concerns and providing explanations and meaning for local facts. It's as if the only alternative to universalism, in which everything can be assimilated by one theory, is a kind of resurgent localism. The alternative to everything can be subsumed under one theory is, no, our theory grew from this soil, and it is therefore appropriate for explaining this soil. And again, as I've said, I don't think he's necessarily completely content with that, but that's the formulation he ends up using quite a bit. And I think it's similar to the way he's using the word incommensurability the goal is the same throughout but but the way he's trying to get to it is is rather strange sometimes because he unintentionally i think reproduces here the idea that like you need chinese theories to talk about chinese realities but he doesn't actually want to say that i i think he says that why do you why do you think he doesn't want to say that because he also suggests that relational theory is applicable to international relations and social relations in general We get into later parts of the book where he talks about the difference between the logic of rationality and the logic of relationality. He makes a strong claim that the logic of relationality actually takes precedence over the logic of rationality anywhere. And so rationality is a subspecies of relationality. If that's the claim, then that's not a claim that relationality is only applicable to the Chinese world. It's a claim that relationality is a set of insights that's global. And so I yeah, think that okay. I, so. So again, I, I I I I'll say again. I don't think he's entirely successful at this, but I think that's kind of the position he wants to stake out.
0: Yeah, I mean, another way of saying this is to say what you said. You've been saying actually for a while, which is that he is trying to develop a fairly nuanced position, and trying to, and often that means that he's trying to balance competing implications of positions. And it's not surprising that that balance isn't always satisfying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he wants to have civilizations be units, more or less, right? Cultural, like big communities of practice uh, that have incommensurable content. But at the same time, he doesn't really want that incommensurable content to get us into like Huntington's world, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to argue that, that... the incommensurability of local background knowledge produces a value incommensurability where you can never have like cross dialogue.
1: Right, and exactly. I actually wanted to ask you, right? Sort of the example that he uses for this point, um, which, given that you've written a bit about balance of power theory i wanted to kind of ask you what you made of this so on page 69 is this paragraph begins. balance of power theory even though it was not applicable to the east asian international system where such a balance was not found and therefore no theory of balance of power was ever developed continues to be a theory of importance which is a strange phrase uh, it is thus argued that even if a social theory does not go much beyond its origin it is still a value and cannot be dismissed and not qualified as a theory I do not mean to deny that social theory should go beyond its origin and gain broader application. I simply want to clarify one important aspect. Any social theory is born locally and starts from understanding, explaining, and interpreting the local. What I think he's saying there is that balance of power theory doesn't explain what's going on in China. And I don't know what to make of that claim exactly. What does it mean that balance of power theory doesn't explain what's going on in China since I, I know we've both, and probably a number of our listeners, have read lots of accounts of what's going on in China that use versions of balance of power theory to cash out their claims.
0: This is the same kind of argument. You can hear me pop the cork, right? This is the moment when I think we have to consume some scotch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, you know, he draws on David Kang. And so let's try to reconstruct this because, you know, I don't want to put words in Chin's in mouth, right? Mm. But... You know, there is a there is an argument uh, that is articulated both by some East Asian IR scholars who are outside of East Asia, and by Chinese scholars, particularly in so-called Neo-Confucian and Confucian IR schools, which I assume Qin is part of. I don't know the topography very well, but I mean, this is a very explicitly Confucian approach to IR, mm-hmm. which basically says that East Asian history is a history of international hierarchy, what we would call hegemony, with China as the hegemonic power. And there are kind of two versions of this argument. So one version of this argument says that China is just so much wealthier and more powerful as an aggregated entity than its neighbors, countries like what we would now call Korea, uh, Japan, Vietnam that all the kinds of arguments you would associate with unipolar stability kick in. right? There's no point in trying to balance China. There's no point in trying to form alliances against it. Uh, So instead you work out repertoires of relationships that reflect uh, that fundamental and durable asymmetry. And this can be fairly variable, One of my students and your colleagues, uh, Ji Young Lee, has a really terrific book about how during the Qing and the Ming, uh, the relevant Korean kingdom draws legitimacy. the, The king draws legitimacy from his investiture by a proper Confucian emperor. And so the Koreans are very reluctant to predate on China, even when China is weak, and they even support the Ming longer than it is probably prudent the Qing, of course, being Manchurian barbarians whose status in Confucian legitimacy is questionable, mm-hmm. um, precisely because to do so would affect their own domestic legi- the, the leadership's own domestic legitimacy. Well, in what well, is now Japan, but which is actually a kind of heterodox group of islands, do have variation. And but in what we think of as Japan proper, uh, that is not the case. The tradition is that the emperor is descended from is, is you know, a, you know is essentially a god, right? Is um, uh, and um, that so he doesn't need Chinese investiture, and this leads to different behaviors towards China. But again, it's Japan largely goes after China when the you know, China the reigning Chinese dynasty when they believe it's weak enough that they can exploit that weakness. But, yeah, so that's kind of the argument. And then you can kind of go, if you go, and then there's a whole set of different sets of relationships that are supposed to apply to the West and the North and the Ordos region and the steppe. Uh, And those are relationships that, again, the argument is don't really resemble balance of power relationships. Uh, They're more complicated because there are periods of time when the steppe nomadic confederations are capable of, uh, you know, are really kind of in power terms, China's equal, but there are reasons why they can't penetrate that it's hard for people on ponies who don't have siege warfare to get into the marshes of China. And so your ability to raid is limited by geography and by technology. And so these kinds of, you know, and, and one of the main things about the Mongols, about Genghis Khan, is that they actually, uh, people who know how to do siege warfare to work for them. Uh, and that's how they're able to overcome some of these um, things. So the argument is that essentially, so there's a kind of power-based argument, raw material power, economic, you know, as much as I hate that term, economic wealth, Military power. China is just the center of it all. It's just too damn powerful, uh, and that means that uh, it you know you get as I get as I said these unipolar stability arguments. There's a cultural deme- there's a cultural version of this argument, which I've already alluded to, which says that perhaps because of this history is so long, you've developed durable patterns of behavior that just culturally assume that China will be in a position of superiority. In that sense, it's a kind of cultural social argument that. The sort of history of the quote-unquote tribute system means that states are, sort of the region is primed towards natural hierarchy, natural hegemony. The relationship between these two mechanisms is difficult and hard to tease out, and it's not even, even people who make this argument are not always consistent about what's driving what. So I don't want to really go there. And if that's true, right, then, then balance of power is not applicable, because generally speaking, the dynamic is never... Do we balance against a rising Chinese hegemon, right? Your ability to do this is very limited, and it's always how do we relationally navigate this hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, And that's the case whether you're in the things that are recognized civilizational units the the more within the Confucian sphere, if you were talking at a period of high Confucianism in China, you know countries like places like Korea, Vietnam, wherever, at various times and places. And it's also true in the way that the steppe nomadic confederations deal with with China. Now, the problem there, as somebody like Victoria Hui would point out, and I think as even David has pointed out in some of his quantitative work, is that this depends on how we code periods of warlordism in what we think of as China proper. So we know, of course, there are periods where China is a, everybody agrees as a multi-state system. Even if there is one dynastic line that claims uh, to be the, the continuous dynasty, right? So um, before the Mongol invasions, there are three major emperors, empires in uh, what's now China and a bunch of other kind of statelets. Um, around so clearly a multi-state system even by any criteria, but there are periods of fragmentation when you've got essentially local control. And the way that this is talked about in Chinese historiography is you know it's warlordism and chaos, and you need a strong unified hand to to get that you know to get back, make things peaceful and prosperous. And so these are not genuinely kind of multi-state environments. And it's I don't know. It's, I don't have the knowledge to work out who's right about that, but I do think that if you look across a very long stretch of Chinese history, what we talk about is China is a entity of variable size and strength and relationships. so um there's somebody like I have the book over here, uh, and I'm blanking out. oh yes, um so you have a book like um.
1: Dan, Dan has now dramatically gotten up and gone to pull the book off his shelf and proper right, so purposorial- like,
0: ni- <laughs> right? Like Nicola de Cosmo's um, Ancient China and Its Enemies, right, he argues that that the Xinu which is the really big steppe confederation that coexists with the Han, um, that they form fairly quickly in, in early Han history. Uh, and he says this is a bipolar system. Right, It's not a unipolar system. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Xinu is a vast, powerful uh, ex- culturally and um politically extensive polity um and I don't know again, I you know I just don't know where do you draw the lines at system, certainly in the Chinese cultural imagination, that doesn't seem to be the case
1: and that yeah. th- thank you for that, by the way, because I am nowhere near as knowledgeable about Chinese history as as all of that was and i'm sure a lot of our listeners were also taking notes as they were as they were listening to this i certainly was no
0: they're making fun of me for not talking about the three kingdoms period and for being a little vague on some of the specifics but anyway go on
1: (laughs) regardless i think that nicely sets up the point and sets up the, the the particular puzzle here for me which is what does it mean to say that balance of power theory doesn't apply To a particular region. And I can think of two different things that that might mean. So, balance of power theory doesn't apply to this area, might mean the mechanism of balancing among units of roughly comparable capacity does not empirically obtain in this region. And if that were the case, then that would be a more or less straightforward empirical question. There are some interpretive nuances about how we code what a unit is and so on, but at least with that, you could say, if we want to see whether balance of power theory applies, we could use the theory, generate some expectations, we could go and measure them against what's actually happening out there in the world. So that's one way that that might be interpreted. The other way, though, that balance of power theory doesn't apply might be interpreted and I'm not sure whether this is actually what Chin is saying, but it occurs to me that it might be. Chin might be saying, in, in more, more along the lines of like when, when Max Weber talks about a theory being adequate at the level of meaning, that in order for a theory to explain something, it has to deploy categories and concepts that are already part of the relevant social and cultural environment. And so the, th- the statement, balance of power theory doesn't apply to China, might be interpreted to mean balance of power theory doesn't use concepts and notions that have any kind of cultural valence in a Chinese context, and therefore there's something prima facie wrong about applying that theory to that cultural context. And I'm not sure which of those two claims Chin is making, or maybe both of those claims. I'm not
0: sure either. And a good example of this is he he invokes Victoria Hui's book, right? Her um, War and State Formation in ancient China and early modern Europe. And he says, um, A comparative study by Hui has shown that the balance of power can only account for one type of the sovereignty-based individual-oriented international system and can't explain other types of international systems, such as the Chinese international system. That's actually not how I read her argument.
1: Well, that, that's the exact right. opposite of what Victoria actually says.
0: So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Victoria's argument, right, is that there are mechanisms associated with balancing and mechanisms associated with uh, domination, and that these are sort of in competition with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a variety of contingent reasons relating to, at points in the book, it's when monetary, monetization of the economy kicks in, and other points, it has to do with the Qin uh, getting very specific kinds of uh, practices in place because they're kind of at the margins of the warring state system, uh, and they develop very strong authoritarian resource-extractive-intensive governance techniques and... Um, for whatever reason that they wind up, the logic of domination wins out, mm-hmm. right? And China's unified under the the Qin, and then you know within a generation there's a civil war, and eventually the Han uh, dynasty emerges. But the um, so it's that's actually not exactly her argument. Her argument would in fact be that the balance of power mechanism is there, mm-hmm. right? It's just not necessarily going to produce a balancing equilibrium um, or a, a balance of, a balanced power outcome. And yeah, so I, I, you know, it's the kind of thing where I really wish we could ask him. And, and there's a, there, again, there's a sort of interesting dimension here. You know, he's Kang. It's a little bit easier to follow what he's doing with Kang because Kang just says, you know, this is David thinks that this is kind of means that the whole system is going to be primed, hierarchical. That's kind of its natural equilibrium. And we'll mm-hmm. return to that as opposed to something like Amitav, who says Acharya, who says, you know, that that the spread of sovereignty norms in in the lack of hold of Confucian. Cultural practices beyond China, even they're what's there in China now post Cultural Revolution, right? That means that you know it's not going to obtain, right? The right. states now value their sovereignty, and that's why they're balancing with the United States against the rise of China, right? That's why Japan and South Korea, Vietnam, right, are are playing these various games. Some of which are more explicitly balancing. Some of them are hedging, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: You know, so, so it sounds like they,
1: we've got a couple of different. Things going on with this question of applicability, both the sort of two that I mentioned, but that also the distinction that you just introduced between like balancing outcomes and balancing mechanisms. And it might be entirely possible to say that, well, maybe we don't see balancing outcomes, but that doesn't mean there aren't balancing mechanisms. So things that we derive from balance of power theory that are still helpful with explaining outcomes in a different region, even if they're either not dominant mechanisms or if they're mechanisms that are combined with other say, sociocultural cultural legitimation mechanisms so that we don't think about this as balancing, even though in some ways it's the same mechanism. There's there's a lot here with this idea that it doesn't apply. And, and it's not entirely clear to me... Well, let me rephrase that. Let me back that sentence up a little bit. It's not entirely clear to me which of these claims he's making, and I actually wonder if it doesn't matter which claim he's making. What matters is, is the overall point he wants us to take from it which is back to this point about what he calls cultural incommensurability diversity difference it's all back to this cultural pluralism argument that that's ultimately the the fundament that he wants us to take out of this
0: right and look i mean i 100% agree that a lot of the theories that we use and deploy come out of the, you know, essentially are observational inferences from European history. Mm-hmm. No question whatsoever. Uh, and that does create biases and bind spots. And I think the whole debate about the stability of hierarchy and the sort of the second or third wave of hegemony debates, you know, polarity in the 90s helped to blow that open. So, I mean, in, in, in there, East Asia figures very strongly. In some of those debates, the the new hierarchy studies, as I've called them. So he's right. He's right pragmatically that we made certain assumptions about the way the international systems operate, which may not hold across time and space. He's right that there's a lot of assumptions about behavior in the European context that are universalized, I think, incorrectly. And I think even within sort of, I think this isn't just, just a problem between Europe and East Asia, right, as these sort of nebulous regions that have thousands of years of history. I mean, I think it's also true across European history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I don't know well enough. We should have brought somebody on for this podcast, but, you know, there's like a point where he's talking about kind of, he's invoking some stuff that's, 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 some aphorisms from the Tang period and you know culturally speaking the Tang are pretty different mm-hmm. right than the the Confucian revivalism that follows in the Song dynasty and stuff like that so I, I had this moments where I was kind of like yeah you know is this you know there's more diversity in, you know, the, the, the sort of the Amartya Sen position, right? That there's diverse traditions everywhere. And some of them, uh, you know, which is not to say that there aren't powerful cultural differences and all that stuff. I totally buy that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, neither of us are, are. So anyway, the, the main point I just want to make is that I think he's right about a lot. And what we're arguing about is sort of what that means for some of the meta theory he's using yes um not whether or not he's right that we improperly universalized this experience everywhere right
1: oh no that that I, th- I think he's absolutely right about that and the the main thread of the argument that runs through the first four chapters that to the extent that you can say that there's a metaphysical hardcore ontological commitment that runs through anglophone ir that it's individualist rationalism I mean, I by that, I've made that argument on several occasions, so have you, like I don't I, I think that's actually correct that he that he's right about that. So no, we are talking here definitely about the kinds of implications of the the way that he's making these particular claims. So:
0: I do want to footnote, and I think we should talk a little bit about Chapter Four mm-hmm. before we move on, um, because we haven't even gotten there, <laughs> really, right? You just invoked it for the first time. But what I want to say is that he's also right, I think, that if um, Western IR scholars had paid more attention to non-Western IR scholars and non-Western scholarship, some of these mistakes probably wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't talk about the 90s blowing open the hierarchy debate or the early 2000s blowing open the hierarchy debate. Mm-hmm. So that is an argument in defense of pluralism yes. of various sorts, including pluralism, uh, including global IR. Mm-hmm. You know, chapter four, I think, is the place where this really hits the road. And it's ironically the place where some of the differences he's, he's making come closest to incommensurability arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, as you say, the argument that IR is grounded in individualist rationalism as opposed to relationalism. And this is a very familiar argument to us. Do you have anything kind of to say about his specific implication of it, or even probably you should explain it?
1: Well, I'll be honest, most of my notes in this chapter were yeah right on go because he was making arguments that i don't know i remember us making in in grad school and other people sort of making as well who were sort of thinking about it in this kind of much broader set of terms the basic argument here is that for all of the differences between very nuanced theoretical and empirical claims across different research traditions in anglophone ir that The major traditions of at least US-dominated IR, the major isms, are all fundamentally the same in presuming a more or less rational, autonomous actor at their core, and then seeking to explain the behavior and decisions that that individual makes, whether that individual is a biological individual or a state, that there's a it's a broad class of scientific ontologies that's all basically centered around this notion of individuality and individual rationality. And in that sense, the neorealist neoliberal synthesis doesn't look like a major event of bringing these two totally different things together. It looks like, as some article I remember reading years ago put it, uh, less filling tastes great. So it's like the same basic thing kind of being put together. And he extends this analysis not just to neo neoliberalism neoliberalism, but of course to what we've called liberal constructivism, which, as we've talked about in our previous episode, is exactly the alliance that Wendt was trying to forge in the nineteen ninety-two piece between strong liberals and constructivists, again around this idea of an individual. And what's interesting here is it's a rational individual, but not rational in the thin rational choice sense. Rational meaning basically working on means and rationality of various kinds. So Chin argues, and I would agree, and other people that that we cite a lot have agreed, people like Ole Jakob Sending have argued that the logic of consequences and the logic of appropriateness are really not all that different from each other. They're the same basic decision-making mechanism with different kinds of inputs. So do we make decisions based on what we think is normally desirable? Do we make decisions based on what we think is instrumentally effective, it's the same basic mechanism all the way through. And Qin is very clear that he thinks all these things belong together, and he is politely critical of moves to assimilate the English school to that way of approaching things. Um, suggesting, picking up the thread that he introduced a couple of chapters earlier, that the really distinctive thing about the English school was the notion of international society, which is not an individualist, rationalist understanding of how international politics works. So the one criticism that I had of this chapter is, and I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, when he talks about Waltz, the version of Waltz that he talks about is the received version of Waltz rather than the version of Waltz that's actually in Waltz. Because he doesn't read Waltz as a structural functionalist. He doesn't read Waltz the way we tend to read Waltz. He reads Waltz the way someone like Kohane tends to read Waltz, which is as an individualist. If you accept that, then I, I found chapter four to be a really insightful, comprehensive discussion of the fundamental unity that underlies a lot of our basic theoretical understandings.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could transpose a lot of what we said on this podcast onto this chapter. You know, he's he's very much in line with us on a bunch of things. Yay! <laughs> you know, I mean, he has a discussion of norms constructivism, right? In the way that norms constructivism, you know, was particularly amenable. I mean, this is not original to us, but you know, was particularly amenable to fitting into a more kind of conventional category, and you know, and then that's what happened i like you i have some concerns around the margin i think his description of description of waltz is not entirely right i think that he is actually not entirely fair to alex and i think that where he's not entirely fair to alex and indeed some of the things that he says he disagrees with uh, with about us that i actually don't think he disagrees with us about i think is where important things start to happen mm-hmm. that i know we've talked about prior to the podcast Um, about some of the ambiguity of the book. So essentially, um, for example, his discussion of Wentian identity theory is a little weird, right? Because in essence, you know, is kind of playing in the world of social identity theory and collective identification. And I'm not quite sure that that's quite as rationalist as he thinks it is, right? I mean, so if, if, for example, I am making basic... If my understanding of your relationship to me is helping to determine or shaping um, how I treat you, this isn't quite as far from his own relational conception as I think he posits.
1: I'll definitely. Despite a lot of metaphysical
0: argumentation and, and yeah. you know, definitely what. Yep, go on.
1: No, I'll definitely give you the, 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 the second part of that completely because, as we'll get into the later parts of the book, I think it's interesting how individualist his own theory ends up becoming. That he ends up sort of talking about this. So, um, It's definitely
0: individualist. I would say that it's not as rationalist as he thinks it is.
1: I actually don't think that he means... I wouldn't use the word rationalism to describe what he calls rationalism. I think the word mm-hmm. I would have used would have been the word decisionism. Yep, I knew you were going to say that. Of course you did. Of course you did. Um, Because ultimately this comes down to a question of how people are making decisions, that it's still individuals that are kind of autonomous making decisions in various ways. And the relational theory that he then posits is going to be about decentering that. So you no longer have a decision-making unit, as it were. Um, Or at least he's going to try.
0: Yeah, I mean, but this is the exactly. It's the second point. It's that to the extent that it is decisionist, it reminds me of ways in which his argument ultimately is decisionist. Yes. and we will get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing, I guess, I have. I mean, I'm just looking at my notes here, but um, his discussion of Went reifying Habesian, Lockean, and Kantian cultures of anarchy, I think, is worth talking about. Yeah. in that respect too.
1: Page page ninety one.
0: Yeah, because he says there are actually two levels of reification in went At the systemic level, his discussion of the three cultures of anarchy, that is the Habesian, the Lockean, and the Kantian cultures, in fact, reifies three cultures to the extent that is reminiscent of the rationalistic understanding of anarchy as an objective reality in the international relations universe. They are created by agents, but once created, have independent force over agents." Then it goes on to tell the reader that these are the structures of the international system, which constitute states as units of the system. Meanwhile, at the unit level, the agent is also reified as more an object constituted and caused by the structure. Uh, And he will go on to point out things like the, that there's an implicit causation relationship here. I wasn't, I wasn't sure about this.
1: Yeah. I actually have a, a series of notes and little exclamation points and things next to this. Um, I mean, the first thing that strikes me is that he's using the word reification in a... It's more the Berger and Luckman sense of reification than it is... Right, which he's explicit about. Yep. So it's the Berger and Luckman <laughs> reification rather than like the, the Alfred Nard Whitehead fallacy of misplaced concreteness kind of, of reification. And if we, if we take that, then, then he's criticizing the idea that a culture could have a set of fundamental stable principles, but his very argument about incommensurability earlier presumed that there were such things. And I'm also not sure why that's rationalistic necessarily. Individualistic, I'll give you. That it's the individual confronting a certain kind of environment that appears to be already settled. And if you wanted to say, okay, the problem is that these three cultures of anarchy are presented in the theory as if they were Parametric environmental factors when what they actually are is continually in process and being produced and reproduced. But that's not the argument that he makes. So I'm not quite sure what the problem of reification is that he's pointing to here. And I think
0: this will come up again. So let's move on because I think we're going to hit a couple of places where it will come up and it will be clearer what I think is going on here. Okay. And I think I know what you think is going on here. Okay. Um, so he has some really smart things to say about Norm's constructivism. You're right. He's really good on this idea that the English school could be assimilated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what was actually kind of neat for me reading this, even though he doesn't belabor the point, is the degree which Wentz, whole Habesian, Lockean and Kantian international cultures is really, he's right. It's really Occidentalist. Mm-hmm. It's really Western centric. These are all liberal understandings of international. These are all liberals, right? Mm-hmm. They're different forms of liberalism. And the so the types of international societies we can have or international concerts we have are understood in very culturally specific terms. And one of the things that I think that's always fun uh, for me about reading, and it's sometimes embarrassing for me about reading works that are very engaged in global IR theorization, is people who And this is where the background stuff, knowledge stuff matters, right? Things you don't even think about as being necessarily, oh, you're just like, oh, right, of course, duh. (laughs) And the way that sort of um, it takes sometimes outside perspectives to denaturalize certain things. It's, you know, I, as I focus on, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just obvious, right? I mean, anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's uh, frighteningly obvious. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is where he really winds down this argument. It's the end of part one where he says, you know, look, look. Um, All of these theories were inevitably going to merge, which I think is a strong claim. (laughs) Okay, this is where where we do have an issue. This is, of course, all oriented around the three paradigms with some discussion of what we might think of as the broader constructionist or constructivist universe, practice theory, relationalism, feminist theory, Cox, although calling that constructivist is really thorny. (laughs) Really thorny. Oh my God, so thorny. I can't believe I said that. Anyway, but this is a three-paradigms argument, and the paradigms he's talking about haven't really looked that way for a while. Right. So there are no neoliberal institutionalists running around anymore, right? There are just people doing liberal IPE. Where Yes, there are assumptions. There are individualists and rationalists that run through a lot of that literature, not some of the heterodox versions of it, but, you know, the OEP model versions and things like that. And there's just not a lot of thought about whether we're realists or not. It's just, it's not relevant. And the realists, I think, do have, you know, they haven't really merged. There has not been a synthesis, right? There's only been a synthesis. In, there's only been a synthesis in the sense that that if he's right that it's all individualist rationalism, then it all wound up being individualist rationalism. But you don't need a synthesis for that. It's just the way things are, Right. right? So it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit overdrawn and it feels, the discussion sometimes feels a bit dated, but it's a really good discussion. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be a discussion that I would definitely recommend to a PhD student studying for comps.
0: So then we get into part two, which is relational.
1: Theory. yes and all um, of a sudden a world of relations and all of a sudden there's mentions of us
0: <laughs> we've mentioned before
1: yes but now we're really we're like mentioned.
0: well you see the problem i had was that if, you know it's like it's like trump if my, our names don't come up enough i lose interest <laughs> <laughs> so
1: you know <laughs> i need more scotch now we're about to discuss us
0: yeah, well the other problem here right is that I, this is deeply mortifying and it was not intended mm-hmm. I should have known this was going to happen we talked a little bit about uh, maybe revisiting our 1999 article just so we could laugh about things in it and feel kind of like oh my god this is us <laughs> 21 years ago mm-hmm. what were we thinking what were we doing we wrote that sentence oh no <laughs> uh, but we're going to have to wind up revisiting us 20 years ago <laughs> because and that uh, seems to be it <laughs> because that's when we show up. Okay, Uh, this is where we get into the heart of the argument, right? Where he's going to articulate his theory of international politics and and of relational theories. Everything that comes before is kind of a, is in a sense, a setup for saying this is the fundamental distinction that we care about. It's relationality versus substantialism. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that the world is constituted by relations rather than substances. Uh, This uh, is a, a culturally inflected difference because individualism is taken as a baseline in the Western context, while relationality is taken as a baseline in the Chinese context. So it also maps onto these civilizational distinctions. Um, now we're gonna go. So, what was your reaction? Relationality, uh, a la Chin.
1: So the the two things that I think most struck me in this chapter were first of all that his his way of cashing out relationality is curiously agent structure dualist in ways that i thought were were kind of an interesting move since he starts off with this notion of a of a confucian cosmos being an imminent cosmos where everything is related but then he ends up going to something that's that's a little bit more a little bit more agent structure co-constitution which i thought was kind of fascinating um the other thing is that as the chapter goes on, the thing that struck me the most is he kind of oscillates between, or slips between, it's not even an oscillation, he kind sort of slips between the level of what you might call sort of fundamental scientific ontology and policy prescriptions. So there's a way that the relationality of the world lends itself to a certain kind of relational practice in the world as kind of a logical consequence of the ontology let me put this a little bit differently the thing that was almost completely absent in this chapter for me was a clear sense of what a postulate like relationality explains there's a way in which the chapter often turns into a kind of description on relational in relational terms of of things establishing that there's a fundamental relationality it's sort of work in 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 basic ontology what there isn't is like in nowhere does he say assuming that there are relations allows us to make sense out of the certain the following certain kinds of phenomenon there's no explanatory moment in that sense so there's a there's it it was it was a little disconcerting i found and not the, the substance of the claims I thought were were perfectly reasonable. It's like, okay, so we're talking about relations and the, the way that the way that these things are related to each other and the critique of substantialism, okay. But it was that wasn't then mobilized to be a foundation for explaining something. Yeah, you know, I went back and forth on
0: this. I had some of the same reaction that you did. But part of me thinks that if his goal is to show that Adopting a different social ontology, which is culturally grounded, gives you different descriptions of the world, then I think it's probably fine. Mm -hmm. It lets you see different kinds of things. Now, we would like to see that pushed further, and it is pushed further in some ways in, say, the chapter on power. But again, it's, it's all theoretical setup. And that's what I mean. This is a book of theory. It's not a. It's not an explanatory book, and it never becomes one. Mm-hmm. We can come back to that. So here he starts out with a discussion of Mstava um really important uh, manifesto for relational sociology, and our uh, 1999 piece, which is just a riff on Emmerber's manifesto for relational sociology, mm-hmm. uh, and our really clumsy processual relationalism terminology that I don't think either of us use anymore— <laughs> And he makes, I think, some good points, Mm -hmm. like that um, the status of the relationship between process and relation is ambiguous and unclear uh, in our work, Mm -hmm. and to some degree in Bear's work. Although I think more in our work, and he's right. But then, and he is actually also right, interestingly enough, that we do not think that relations have to be between human beings. Yes. corporate humans hmm. that we so we are we are more comfortable for example with uh, actor network theory versions of relationalism mm-hmm. and our framework is more comfortable with actor network theories of relationalism with actants and other sorts of things non-human even non-animal <laughs> agent like entities so that's yeah that's true we we're fine with that he's right and what's funny is that we didn't i don't think we even thought about that very much when we were writing the piece mm-hmm. Um, so he, he figured that out, reading a version of us where we hadn't figured that out yet, I think fully, but he does make this incredibly um, important move, which is, I know where you probably start to choke and it does get you into the problem, potential problem of dualism where he says, he says, we don't define relations. I mean, I don't know if that's the case, but, um, but he says relations are first of all, human relations. Uh, so they involve indispensable human agency. He is right that... We are not as comfortable with um, agency, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in that piece. Uh, we probably have some disagreements there, actually, uh, you and I. But what's interesting is I think he ultimately comes down, at least in terms of agency, to a very similar place that we do. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so he makes this move that says all all relations are human relations. And what did you think of that? You th- I mean, uh, that does differentiate him from a lot of relational
1: theory. That definitely does, and I'm. Not, I don't agree, but more importantly, I'm not sure what's at stake in this strong social natural distinction for him. I don't know why it matters that whether relations are uniquely human or whether relations are more general than just the human. I mean, he says, when he's sort of critiquing our lack of conception of agency on page 111, um, the yoking effect that finally produces the entity is basically a a temporospatial chance with few human elements involved. In other words, nothing would happen if the necessary processes were not related perhaps by chance. And I look at that and I think, yeah, I, I actually don't disagree that that's kind of how... Things kind of they come together, and the fact that they come together is not something that you don't go behind the curtain and find some pre-existing agent out there that's going to exercise agency to pull things together in a particular way. Um, but that's a very important point for him, and I can't quite figure out why. So I don't know what I don't know quite what's at stake in that strong distinction that he keeps drawing, particularly since, as you said, and I completely agree with you, the place he ends up with about agency by the time you get to the end of the chapter where he's talking about agency as essentially arising from the ambiguity and relational patterns that the agent find themselves in meshed in, I'm like, well, yeah, that's... We agree. Yeah. I agree. That's kind of what we say. We
0: we both locate, we both follow Harrison White and others. Agency is located in contingency, mm-hmm. right? In the human human creativity, right? It's pragmatism. You can spin it out however you want. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit weird for me to read that. Um, not just kind of at a personal level, mm-hmm. but also at a kind of what is going on here level. Yeah. That's, that. I think that's that's a really yeah, exactly. Uh, The other th- maybe, should we back up? I mean, I know that this is going on forever, but Should we talk about Dewey and Bentley? Should we talk a little bit about... I I don't know what our audience is... I have no idea. Our audience seems to range a fair amount over the map in terms of IR background. Mm -hmm.
1: So do you want to say a little bit about what the background of this is? Yeah, it's to just sort of build on that a little bit, right? So if you take substantialism and relationalism as being ways to cut in ontologically sort of what are the ontological primitives of your particular account of the world is the world fundamentally made up of discrete things that have properties or is the world made up of doings processual doings ways in which things are related to and relating with one another and to say at least for you and i to say you start with substantialism or start with relationalism is to make a claim not about like what really is, but to make a claim about what's where's a more useful place to begin theorizing. So every theory has a set of ontological primitives. It's a question of whether we think of those primitives as being objects with dispositional properties or whether we think of them as being these active, processual doings. And Dewey and Bentley, who you mentioned before, John Dewey and Arthur Bentley, um, had written this book in 1949, which is called Knowing in the Known, which is a title that I have appropriated in lots of things that i have done over the years um and full disclosure we found that book in the footnotes and discussion of emmer bayer's piece and so he was the one who kind of turned us on to that book uh initially but dewey and bentley's book is is this like tour de force critique of late logical positivism, and a whole bunch of things going on in there. But one of the things that's most interesting about the book is they make this distinction between three different kinds of theoretical cuts into the world. You have a theory of, and they're all social theory cuts, there's a, there's a cut of what they call self-action, there's a cut of interaction, and there's a cut of transaction. And these are three different ways of thinking about like how action arises. So self-action would be entities people bring out of themselves from inside of them, basically their motives, and then they go and do things kind of based on their own internal promptings. And then there's interactive theories, which would say social things happen because of the way people engage directly with one another, bounce off of each other. So I'm interacting with you strategically. And then there's transactions, which is, To say, you don't start with the existence of independent individuals interacting with each other, you start with interactions and talk about how the individuals emerge in the course of the interaction with one another. And for them, this is a you know, continuum from substantialist up to relational, um, that the, the, the transactive approach is the, is the one that really takes relations as a starting point, whereas the interactive approach takes individuals as a starting point. Now, what Ember Bayer does with this distinction, and what we borrowed from Ember Bayer to do with this distinction, is to suggest that a lot of the existing social theoretical postulates in Anglophone IR were interactionist that they started with the positing of entities that were separate from one another that then had strategic engagement with each other. And that that was how we read neoliberalism, how we read neorealism, how we read wentian constructivism, is that these things are sort of doing that. And then there's an alternative, which is say, no, let's not talk about states interacting with each other. Let's talk about the more fundamental transactional patterns that give rise to states, which is thus the title for the piece, right? Relations Before States, the idea being that if you take transactions as your starting point, then we are able to account for the emergence and continued existence of entities, whereas in the interactionist or substantialist approaches, the entities are presumed. And this is the same kind of argument that that Chin is making. He's not using the Dewey and Bentley language in quite the same way. Uh, but to- although he does... Invoke them. He does invoke them, but, he, but he, he tries very hard not to ground himself in that. He tries to ground it in more this—and this, this sets up the, second, the next chapter, too. But he grounds it in a sort of Chinese uh, cultural tradition. Mm-hmm. But the idea being that if you start with relations, then what's interesting is—and this is an important difference, I think, between Qin and us—for us, at least in the 99 piece, our punchline was we can account for the emergence and existence of these units— We can account for why there are states by not starting with states. We start with relations. Chin is less interested in why there are units. But there is still a fundamental kind of ontological similarity between us in in starting out with at this level of what we would call transactions. And that's how we I think how we understood relations at that point. Is that does that give some context. Yeah, I think
0: I think that's true. I, I'm just trying to think about how we could do a really quick version, independent of what Chin argues, for what the stakes are for IR, right? For actually, like, theorizing international relations beyond the, the high theory. To do that, I might kind of give a weaker version of relationalism, which is, I think, what I do in practice now. Mm. Either I'm adopting self-consciously relational theoretical positions, like work I've done on field theory, for example. But more particularly what it's done to is that I kind of, when I want to explain what's happening, I kind of start with relational phenomena. And so it's, it's a little bit more pragmatic and less dogmatic than we were. So if you think about like the book that I just had come out, which does, there's not a lot of high theory in the book, right? We mentioned this last time, but if you know what I'm doing there in the stuff that I wrote and, and Alex and I are doing together, Alex Cooley and I are doing our understanding of hegemony is very relational And it's relational in the sense that we understand hegemony as being a pattern of relationships that undergird all of the things that we, the sort of surface level stuff we talk about with hegemony. And so we're very concerned with kind of the the network infrastructure of American hegemony uh, and the way that operates. And why that's so important and why, you know, now the Trump administration, which doesn't seem to view that as important, doesn't think that does any work. Are mean, missing the way in which that's a crucial power resource, for example. We also kind of relational when we talk about thinking about their national system as an eco, as a sort of an ecosystem in which as actors relate to one another, they transform as relations with one another and create kind of niches and channel one another's activities, right? And so we use that metaphor to talk about what's happening as, China is entering the international system as an international goods provider in a really ramped up way. And it's actually interfacing with a system that has niches, places of sparsity, places of density um, as it builds its alternative infrastructure. And so that's shaping how it does so example. Um, so that's a much weaker form of relationalism, but it means you look at different kinds of things. So the payoff for me in all this work I've done in hegemony, whether it's there or elsewhere, is to is to really say, look, we need to focus on the kind of meso-level processes of hegemony and the way that those are really essential to the management and maintenance of hegemony, which puts me in a place that, frankly, is very similar, um, although I'm using different analytics to some of the things that, that Chin is going to argue later. Mm-hmm. So and you know, and then you have sort of in the harder core network analysis, you have you know you have people using network positionality or network structural features to explain behavior, or you know, I mean, I guess the basic way is the, the, my work has always conceptualized the, the the structure of international relations and the entities that make up international relations in terms of network characteristics, right? In terms of essentially diagrams of where the nodes and the relationships and those nodes are, mm-hmm. uh, so it does give you certain kinds of Perspectives on things, and it does make a difference. It does draw your eye to different kinds of things, and it produces certain different kinds of theoretical mechanisms. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that should be enough, right? Mm-hmm. That's a. I think so. I think so. Okay. Hey, listeners. I don't know whether that was okay or not, but I do know that it was the closest thing I could find to a sensible breakpoint about midway through our recording. I should have part two up in relatively short order. Our guitar music was provided by Lyra gemmel If you like what we do here, be sure to leave us a favorable rating or a positive review at whatever service you use to listen to this podcast. Until next time, take good care of yourself wash your hands, practice appropriate social distancing. Remember, we care about each and every one of you.